Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, our guests are Reverend Dr. Cassandra Gould, the Executive Director of Missouri Faith Voices and Minister of Beyond the Walls, and Reverend Wendy Bruner, President of the Board of MCU and Pastor at Peace United Church of Christ in Webster Groves. Today, we're gonna to talk about an upcoming program called Mothering the Earth Social Justice Symposium. This event will be hosted by Peace UCC and Reverend Dr. Gould will be one of the guest speakers focusing on environmental racism. So first of all, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Kevin. First of all, tell us the basics about the symposium. Uh, where and when will it happen and who will be participating and who should attend? Um, well, so it's going to be via Zoom on May 1st from 9 a.m. to noon. Um, registration is open, of course, and it is free. Uh, the people who will be speaking uh, on that day are, as you said, Reverend Dr. Cassandra Gould, um, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who was the head of uh, uh, Deaconess Center, Deaconess Foundation, and now is the executive director of Children's Defense Fund and CEO, and uh, Reverend Jim Antal, who is a retired UCC pastor. He's written a book called uh, Climate Church, Climate World. And so those are the three speakers and we'll be um, having them share stuff in a different, in a, three different ways. I would just say everybody should be there because we're talking about the world and creation and being good stewards of it. So since we're all supposed to participate in that, I would suggest anyone should, uh, anybody who has interest in that should be there. Okay, great. So it's open to more than just the congregation of, of this church then? It is open to everybody, and we have gotten registrations already from across the country. So that's really cool. Though we can't be in person, it's still wonderful. Uh, it's still wonderful to have so many people from far away too. So now, for each of you, how do you see environmental justice and your faith connected? Let, let's connect the two of those. Uh, so I am reminded of a scripture. Um, Psalm uh, twenty-four says, "The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, everything in it." all who live in it. And so for me, uh, environmental justice um, is uh, a part of being a, a good steward of what God has given us. Uh, it means that we actually have the opportunity and the privilege, God trusted us enough to uh, maintain and sustain the earth, uh, not just as a, a location, not just as uh, the place that we live and breathe, but that is also important, but to maintain it for our neighbors, for all of God's children. And, and so to follow up on that, what would you include in the environment? I mean, we always, we, we think about rivers and streams and, and uh, um, uh, wide open spaces and things along those lines. But, but what, when we're talking about environmental justice, what are we including in the word, the environment? That means that we're not just talking about it uh, in theoretical ways, right? 
um, like uh, unless you're touching the globe, you feel that you can't really touch uh, the world. But we're talking about the spaces that uh, the most vulnerable people have to occupy. We're talking about neighborhoods. We're talking about the places where people not just walk outside and and breathe the air, but the places that they lay their heads and the air that they have access to. We're talking about the green space that people have access to. And so it is uh, much more tangible. It is uh, what we all wake up to in the morning and what we get to experience once we walk outside uh, the door. And it is what is going on in the invisible realm, I, I, I guess you could say. And, not, and I don't mean that in a spiritual way, because frankly, a lot of what goes on is antithetical um, to you know, to the Holy Spirit, right? Because what goes on is uh, toxicity and et cetera that kills some people, that has a deadly impact on some people depending on where they live. So it is um, not just like how we're keeping our lawns or not merely uh, if you are choosing paper or plastic, not merely if you're deciding to recycle or not to recycle. It is about how you are treating the inhabitants. The, the reason that I chose that scripture is it's not just talking about where we live, but it's also talking about who lives here. And so how are we treating the inhabitants of particular parts of the world, particular zip codes, particular neighborhoods? Uh, let's focus a little bit more on this idea of environmental racism. Define this for us and, and give us some examples. Yeah. And so, again, uh, you know, really going back to that example, if God's um, environment, God's idea of ecology is that um, the world belongs to God, all of the people belongs to God. We also learn uh, through scripture and experience with God that God is no respecter of person. So all of us are to have this kind of equal access to the fullness of the world the fullness of the, of the earth, the safety of the earth. And environmental racism is a byproduct of uh, white supremacy. It's a byproduct of this fraudulent notion of human hierarchy. Um, this notion that says not all of God's children are eligible for a safe environment. Not all of God's children are legitimate. Not all of God's children actually deserve to have their humanity, their life sustained in a quality way. So some of God's children can be subjected to really um, evil toxins that live in their neighborhood. Some of God's children can be subjected to decisions are made by people who would not dare step foot in their neighborhood but would choose to have their neighborhoods as a site of uh, toxic uh, waste dumps. Some of God's children are not human enough. And, and particularly in America, it goes back as an African-American woman, I can't disconnect it uh, from the fact that my ancestors were legislatively deemed not to be fully human. And we've been fighting that race every since. We've been, you know, fighting against that every since. And so it also manifests itself in the environment, not a natural occurrence, not a holy occurrence, but an unholy occurrence where some of God's children 
are subjected to literally being dumped on um, by having an environment that is uh, toxic and not safe, things that they don't even know, right? They don't know that um, there is uh, pollution or chemicals in the water. They don't know that there are buildings that were not properly um, dismantled and et cetera, that might still have uh, toxic waste or toxic chemicals, chemicals be emitting uh, gases and et cetera, that could be detrimental to uh, their organs, to their well-being. And are there some specific examples how this plays out in a, in a day-to-day environment where for families, for children, um, where, where they're uh, uh, confronted with, with uh, an unhealthy environment on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. I've lived uh, more than 35 years of my life um, in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Um, in St. Louis, there's something called uh, Cold Water Creek um, right outside of uh, the city limits. Uh, Cold Water uh, Creek has um, been a kind of a dump site, right? It has been a place where uh, radium and et cetera has been released um, into uh, the water. Um, there are multiple studies and I'm pretty sure HBO uh, did something um, around this. It's in the, the Hazelwood North County area. And so there is a disproportionate number of people that um, have suffered uh, from uh, cancer diagnosis. Um, Many of them uh, have been African-American. If you are on a grand near Wendy's home church, uh, near uh, my my old home church, my my, uh, neighborhood that I grew up in near my grandparents' house where the old Bush Stadium used to be, um, there is uh, a building that was a Carter uh, carburetor. Uh, I'm old enough that I remember when it was a very vibrant uh, factory um, and it was closed. And next to Carter Carburetor is Herbert Hoover Boys Club. And um, studies show that because they made carburetors there and God only knows what kind of chemicals and et cetera uh, were used in that plant, um, that basically it was a toxic waste site. It is in North St. Louis. Um, The average child who goes to Herbert Hoover Boys Club, uh, where my little brothers uh, played and participated in sports, and even my son uh, participated in sports, is a Black child. Um, That site would have never been left unattended years after being closed next to a a children's facility, a children's recreational facility in South St. Louis would not have been a factor at all. So those are like living examples of what we face, particularly in uh, Black communities uh, across the country, but bring it home in St. Louis. Uh, Think of the Flint water crisis. Um, These are things that would not even they're unfathomable in a predominantly white city or in a white community. And, and I think the, the for me, the, the term um, uh, environmental racism also comes with a flip side to it, which means that there is environmental white privilege. Um, and 
and that there's a certain intentionality at, at the Coldwater Creek example is is something where it's something dumped in an area um, that is not in my backyard for those that have the privilege. And it, it's, well, we'll put it there because we don't care about that area. Um, so do you have any other thoughts about this idea of, of environmental privilege? Yeah. And so again, um, if environmental uh, racism is a byproduct of white supremacy and white supremacy supremacist ideas, um, white superiority, white privilege is also a byproduct that, of that. Uh, and it means that uh, people who are in the majority, people who have the power, people who have been trained and, thought, and taught um, that they always get to have the upper hand and make decisions for people who they have considered to be less than will always have a surplus, will always have uh, an abundance of that which is considered good, and the rest of us will have uh, our neighborhoods plundered. Uh, and if our neighborhoods are plundered, our lives are literally plundered. And so, yes, it is a, a, a part of, of the fraudulent notion of white superiority, which leads to uh, this, uh, you know, an innate kind of feeling of, of, of white privilege that allows those in charge to make those kinds of decisions. It's not just that this environment is not, that, that this area is not important to us. In fact, if we look at most of the studies um, with white flight, uh, oftentimes they have formally, there's somebody that's formally been a part of the majority group that has lived in the area but because the people that now occupy the land are not important to us, it means that we can do anything to the land because in essence, what we're doing is anything to the people. So I, I live in North City, and so I, I can uh, totally agree with what Cassandra said. I actually didn't realize there was a super fun site on Grant or on Grant uh, until one day I was walking down the street and I was like, oh my gosh, we, we were, had just been talking about it and there it was, at least it's fenced off now. But um, I, think, I think it's about how we do all kinds of things in neighborhoods we don't care about, right? We dump trash in, in neighborhoods we don't care about. We um, allow for sidewalks or any, any kind of caretaking of that area to lapse. Um, responses are slow if there's somebody that uh, needs something or wants something fixed. And when you cross into another area of town where it is predominantly white, you'll see a very different response. Or like, for instance, the little neighborhood school a block away from me where I just voted this morning, um, it's going to be closed. But you know what? There's probably lead in the water there, right? But if you go across town, right, you have a very different situation. And it's just, it's just people, people don't care. And that is disturbing. You had mentioned uh, the dumping. That, that just triggered in my mind a, a memory of the last couple of years, there being an issue of people from outside of the city of St. Louis, specifically hauling their trash into St. Louis in order to dump it in, in the alleys. And my guess is their target is not South St. Louis and Holly Hills where I live, 
but is North St. Louis. So you actually have individuals and probably companies um, actually making the effort uh, to drive miles to avoid responsibility for uh, getting rid of waste that should be handled in a proper manner and putting it in the back in the backyard, essentially, of, of places where people live. Literally in the backyard. And, you know, I, I wrote about this and I can't remember who it was, but right. They literally gave up on North City, right? The city of St. Louis gave up on North City. And we see um, how that plays out in everyday living, right? They tear down buildings and, right, who knows how that's get happening, but it's all, right, all these buildings are being torn down and, and done in a way where you just don't know, like, what they're leaving in, in, um, and in it's like leaving when they, when they, uh, when they demolish it or like what they're putting into the dirt when they dig the hole. And we actually just experienced that next door to us. Right. And, and they were messy. Now they left the space well, but they were so messy and they like, everything was on our yard and that would never have happened somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? I think there's just this lack of care and because they don't think North City, let's say, for instance, this is my experience, counts, why they just dump their, their trash there and um, in whatever that looks like. I, I was just going to add, um, so we are having this conversation on election day. I, I posted on social media a little while ago, I'm reminded of being a 14-year-old little girl. Uh, if I'll tell you when, you'll know how old I am. <laughs> um, it was before 1980. And I wrote an op-ed, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, my first op-ed at 14. And it's the same, and it was about the educational system, about schools in North St. Louis um, not being equal in me uh, for reasons, um, having to go to a school in, in South St. Louis to get the curriculum that I needed. Um, but it's all connected. It's all connected to a side of town. We know all of the studies that talk about the demarcation lines in, in St. Louis. Yes, there are some white people who live in North St. Louis. Yes, there are black people who live in South St. Louis, but we know about the Del Mar dividing line that has been documented around the world, literally. And um, it is a side of town that has been abandoned. I've lived in St. Louis County for a long time. I haven't lived in the city proper since probably 1998. But if I take a drive, particularly down a street like Grand or North Kings Highway, which goes the length of St. Louis City, the neighborhood still looked the same near Highway 70. And it is as if you're going into a whole different city once you get on the other side of Del Mar. And there is something that is just, um, there's something that's evil about that, honestly. And so we continue to have this generation after generation and it is expressed uh, in the environment because it's the very ethos of those who make decisions about what happens in the city of St. Louis. You'd mentioned um, things happening over generations. That, uh, that another question I have is about, let's talk about the manifestations of, and the impact uh, that that poor environment, that poor health can have over generations. I think we talk about this when we talk about wealth, 
but it seems to me also that that the environment that you grow up in, that your children grow up in, that that grandchildren grow up in, this all sort of then sort of compounds. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah. So, and there are uh, various studies that talk about zip codes um, and how the zip code that you grow up in um, actually can determine, you know, where you end up. Um, a, a local, uh, for the sake of all, which was a study that was done probably uh, during or slightly after Ferguson, I know it's mentioned in the Ferguson Commission report, um, shows the disparity of if you grow up in, um, and I think it was 63107 uh, versus 63105 or 63115, any of those city zip codes versus 63105, which is Clayton, um, that there is approximately an 18-year uh, span of life, projected span of life difference. So to live in North St. Louis means that you are literally subjecting yourself to living less years on this earth, having not just a less abundant life, but a shorter life than to live in a more affluent neighborhood. Um, all of these things are connected, um, not just to what is a, um, emitted into the environment, but also what's in your environment, where the grocery store is. When grocery stores close, so in my, in, in Wendy's neighborhood, um, and my grandparents, my grandfather used to love to go to the grocery store that was right there across the street from St. John's CC Church. When that national supermarket closed and maybe Schnooks came in after it, I don't remember that, but for the longest time, it is just, it's not been a grocery store. And so the food deserts, all of the things that people are subjected to in the zip code that I live in, 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 um, not in North County, uh, in St. Louis County, I have to drive a bit to even get to a fast food restaurant, but I can walk to the grocery store. I can walk to Walgreens. I can walk uh, to the park. I can walk to a bookstore. Um, in North St. Louis, you might be able to walk to uh, a McDonald's or something else, some other kind of food that might not necessarily be good for you, but you can't necessarily walk to grocery stores. Um, you can't necessarily walk to other things that could be more beneficial to you. So again, there's this uh, intersectionality uh, around all of these isms that are literally byproducts of uh, the fraudulent notion of white supremacy that impacts our lives in very negative ways. I, you know, I talked about my op-ed. Um, it meant that going to school from my grandparents' house that, were, that was uh, Beaumont High School over on Natural Bridge, uh, the principal said to my parents, by the time she's a junior, we won't have the math and the science that she needs. So, and I was considered an accelerated student, but it broke my little 14 year old heart because it meant that my, my friends who lived in that community um, also didn't have the math and science that they needed when they were in KG or the fourth grade or the eighth grade. And they would never know that there was additional math and science that they could take. And I guess it has that extra effect too of 
yes, you were an accelerated student and were able to take advantage of these programs, but you're also then sort of exposed to this idea that you almost had to earn your way out of where you were at in order to get the resources that you needed, as opposed to the resources being in place, which would be the assumption in, in a white school. That is exactly correct. So I was forced um, to go to uh, Southwest High School, um, not busing, but if my parents wanted to, um, you know, for me to, to have a public education that I got the resources that I needed, um, it meant that I, A, I started school about a week after my peers. We didn't have email and et cetera then. So my parents had to take go down to 9-11 Locust, the um, then um, district uh, office, fill out what was called a uh, hardship permissive transfer. These are things that I will never forget. Um, and then, you know, they couldn't email it back to you. So you had to wait until it was signed off on and approved and mailed back to you. Someone had to credential me to be eligible to go to a school that was in the same district, but a school that was filled with more people who did not look like me. I had to be deemed uh, exceptional that there was something um, special or different about me uh, that would allow me to go into their school the curriculum at Beaumont High School, and I, I don't remember, but the, well, I do remember this. The book may have been about one inch thick. When I got to Southwest High School, my family had recently visited L.A., and I was struck by, as a child, how thick the Los Angeles Yellow Pages was in comparison to the St. Louis Yellow Pages. When I got to Southwest, the curriculum looked more like the Los Angeles um, yellow pages and Beaumont's looks like the St. Louis yellow pages. Um, I could have taken at least 12 different uh, foreign languages um, at Southwest. And it was just a part of, and it wasn't a magnet school. It was too long ago to be a charter school, just another school, but in a neighborhood that was actually very similar to the neighborhood on the other side of town, both working class neighborhoods. But the difference was, is that little white children went there and so we wanted little white children to have everything they needed in comparison to black children in North St. Louis. I got to know somebody who was one of the first, this shows you how short of a time span that the white flight took place in, in North St. Louis. He was one of the first African-American students to attend Beaumont in the late 60s, in the, like the mid to late 60s. In 10 years, that school had had flipped um, and and all of those resources were extracted in in a decade or less um, and and that's that's how fast that happened in that neighborhood that is exactly right so my my, my family's from uh, Alabama so my my, my my mother went to Beaumont high school and um, somewhere in a box I have her yearbook and she was one of a very few black students when she went to Beaumont. When my grandparents uh, moved on the 3800 block of Greer, um, there were, they were one of two or three black families. Um, and so, yes, it had all flipped in a matter of a little over 10 years, right? Uh, probably about a, a 12, 14 year period, just completely different. And so, yes, in that short span of time, 
uh, white flight had made a considerable difference uh, in the community as well as in the educational system. Uh, Reverend Bruner, um, I want to, uh, when we're talking about um, environmental racism and it being part of white supremacy, this, and I, I'm, I'm always trying to remind myself of this, is that the, 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 the folks that bear the brunt of these systems, these racist systems, are the ones who are not the ones who need to do the changing. It's those of us who have the privilege. So where, where do we as white people in a system of environmental white supremacy need to see that we're culpable and, and, and make changes? First of all, I mean, we have to acknowledge, right, that things are not equitable. So uh, you actually maybe have to take a trip somewhere into the city, uh, not the ball, uh, baseball stadium, let's say, or the aquarium or wherever it is that we make it look really pretty, but go somewhere else to actually see the disparity. I think the other piece is, and th this is this bothers me, and I there was somebody that spoke about this uh, when, uh, when I first came back to St. Louis and they talked about, right, like how our uh, public school system is funded, right? So if there's a very sh small tax base, that there's no money to fund public school, but you go somewhere else and there's a huge uh, th uh, uh, ta uh, tax base. And so there's lots of money to fund school. So this idea of, now this is, an, this is right, like we could do this if we really believed and cared about people, that we would consolidate uh, community, like we consolidate the tax base, right? And say, we're going to have an equitable sharing of, uh, of tax money in a region, right? So that it would be shared, right? So that's just one thing, right? That's just one thing. But I think the bottom line is, we just actually need to listen and believe people, right? When somebody tells me there is a <laughs> There is a super, uh, super fun site and their children are playing right next door to it and how terrible that is. Number one, I need to believe that that's actually happening. And then I need to say, that's not the way it is for my child. So how can we make it equitable? And I think if we put some passion there and, and take direction, right? So if I don't live in a, pl in a place that has been affected this way, then there are leaders in that place, in that area that, that I need to connect with and take their lead and become part of the people power, right? That can make the change, right? So white people, first of all, need to step back and not be the leaders of everything and not have the agenda for everything and not think that their way is the right way for everything, right? That is so important, right? Folks who are living in places are the, are the people who need to make decisions about what, where it is they're living. So I think, and that's really hard for us white folks right? To say, okay, like, I'm just going to be there. And Cassandra, I, you're going to tell me where to stand today. And I'm going to stand there. And I'm going to like, you know, or I'm going to knock on these doors. And I'm right, because Cassandra has given me the direction. Now, I'm not saying we rely, uh, we, we make all the African American people do the work. But the places where the communities are that are being heavily hit by environmental racism, that is where the right? That is, those are the people that need to take, that will take the leadership and we need to be supportive of that. But there's all kinds of other things we can do. We can vote, right? For God's sakes, if there's something wrong that's happening in Jeff City, like we vote the people out, right? Like, I, I think that's just huge. We're seeing that right now. We've got to like actually vote people out of office if they're not doing what we want them to do, the will of the people. Um, so there's that to be done, certainly. Uh, but I, 
But I think that we just need to see, right? We need to see what's going on and build relationships with people. Like I can't tell, like Kevin, you know, because you listen to me preach, but that is like core of the work Jesus did, right? Is building relationships and standing up to the empire, right? And so, and so if we build relationships with each other, then we realize suddenly that our lives are at stake too, right? When something bad is happening in North City, my life is at stake too, or the people I love are at stake too. And so we're all in, like, we're, I know this sounds corny, we're all in this together, but we actually have to start believing that, right? And I think if our lives are on the line, then we'll do the work. And, and I think we have to get there. We've got a lot of work to do and there's trust building to, to build. There's trust building there, but it, it all starts with building some kind of relationships and, um, and actually seeing people as human beings. And we don't. And, and that, that's just the blunt, that's just bluntly saying it like it is. I think we're getting close to wrapping things up. Uh, Reverend Dr. Gould, I want to give you the opportunity to, to plug Missouri Faith Voices. Uh, what is the mission? What is the vision? And what are some of the things uh, the organization is currently addressing? Yeah, thank you. And so uh, in, in the scheme of a movement space, uh, in some ways, Missouri Faith Voices is one of the babies of the bunch. Uh, we celebrate 10 years this year. Uh, a decade ago, a, uh, a group of faith leaders from across the state uh, came together and uh, officially formed the Missouri Faith Voices um, to respond to from a perspective of, of faith. Um, many of the issues, uh, the ills uh, that are byproducts of, of racism uh, in America and in this state. One of their primary goals was to see that Medicaid expansion happen. It took a decade, right? Um, but we were very excited about that happening um, last year. So we are um, the only statewide uh, faith-based uh, grassroots organization, uh, multi-faith, multi-racial. We currently have chapters in the city of Springfield or the Southwest Missouri area, uh, St. Louis metropolitan area, uh, Columbia, Missouri, Jefferson City, Missouri, and we're working on a Kansas City chapter. We are a multi-issue um, with, um, we say we're compelled by our faith in all of the different strands of our faith um, and work on issues that are connected to racial uh, inequity, uh, uh, having racial equity as the goal. Currently, um, we have a C3 and a C4, so uh, we've been happy to um, engage in, you know, uh, the work of uh, faith and, and politics. Uh, we were knocking on doors all weekend. Um, I had a chance to get out to our 314 vote, um, a kind of a, a last minute uh, voting uh, GOTV celebration. Um, that we partner with Action St. Louis and Black Votes Matters out of um, Atlanta came to town to partner with us. We did that at Solon High School because we believe that um, people in North St. Louis have a, a vested interest in this race. Um, our buckets of work across the state, while some of it um, varies depending on the location that we're in, but this year uh, we're focusing on health equity, um, hiring a uh, black healthcare advocate. Um, we were particularly stirred by COVID and 
um, all of the inequities that it exposed, things that we knew, but things that the, the, the world, the state needed to realize. Um, so hiring a black healthcare advocate to work across the state on uh, those issues, the impact of COVID, also to make sure that you know, Medicaid uh, expansion is implemented well, which we're struggling with the legislative body on that um, already. Um, our just democracy work is our work to fight for free and fair and uh, elections that don't require additional photo ID um, to maybe at some point in the state have automatic voter registration and expanded voter rights versus um, decreased voter rights. Um, and then our uh, just reform is what most people would call criminal justice reform, but even that name makes me ill. Um, so under that, we are supporting the work of uh, Close the Workhouse, uh, working on um, you know decreasing this this pipeline to prison, and sim similar to um, MCU and the Break the Pipeline work and really advocating for those who have been formerly incarcerated to be able to have um, access uh, to life as the rest of us know it. Um, and Families First is our work around environmental justice, fighting predatory lending, things that make families whole and well, and also includes our immigration work. So we're working in four buckets this year um, election season will be over basically today. And I actually thank God for that. And we'll be on some listening tours, talking to people in St. Louis city, particularly around, um, gun violence reduction. We are so excited. Our collective national network and other organizations that we work with got the Biden administration to write in like five over five uh, billion dollars uh, that can be used to ward a uh, gun violence reduction. Now we got to work to get, you know, to get it passed um, in uh, in Congress. But we're excited that there might be some real opportunity for people on the ground to actually get what they need to address um, violence. And we know that St. Louis is one of the most violent places on the planet. And so that's how we're spending our energy this year. We'll spend the rest of the year listening and working to make these neighborhoods better um, so that all God's children will have an opportunity to live in a world um, that Marilyn Stavanger would uh, approve of. All of God's children will have the opportunity to, to breathe the kind of air uh, that Marilyn was able to breathe. And so that's what we're doing this year. That's a good transition. Let's uh, the 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 symposium is named after Marilyn Stavanger. Um, the, uh, just your your thoughts on on Reverend Mar Marilyn Stavanger. Yes. So I had um, the privilege to as as did uh, Wendy to be um, at Eden Seminary uh, while Marilyn uh, was still very much a part of the community. Very much um, had influence uh, still at the school, very accessible. So had many opportunities to sit with Marilyn, to learn from her. Um, I remember her um, very fondly. Um, Marilyn was very uh, transparent and talked about ways in which she had, you know, transformed some, some of her own uh, viewpoints and ways as a, as a white person in the academy 
um, in, in the church, ways in which she had uh, been transformed over the years when it come, came to issues of race. Uh, one of my best memories of her is her taking the, the lead, being the faculty that was um, responsible for a group of, of primarily African-American students, but certainly uh, a large contingency of, of, of white students as well, going to the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, uh, a, Proctor, uh, a conference that is still near and dear uh, to my heart. Um, and Marilyn being the faculty person, like watching her work, looking at the set of relationships that she had across the country um, with black and white faith leaders was actually just amazing to me. She was connected in ways that people may not have been um, familiar with or may have gone unnoticed. Uh, she allowed me to have a lunch. Uh, this made me this personal connection with me and Dr. Yvonne Delk, who is held in highest regard, uh, not just in UCC circles, but amongst faith leaders uh, across the country. And her connecting me to Dr. Delk, um, Dr. Delk asked me and another Eden student to be our personal guest at lunch that day. And it is a relationship, you know, that I continue. But all of that happened because of Marilyn and her willingness to invest in me as a seminarian. And so I remember her fondly and I'm so excited uh, and privileged, not just excited, but humbled and privileged to have this opportunity uh, to participate in this inaugural event that is in a memory of her. So she's a mentor, right? It was uh, uh, amazing for me to be able to come back to St. Louis and um, have Marilyn sitting in the front pew uh, Sunday mornings, um, being an uh, incredible support. And I remember one of the things, and this is why this symposium is partly named after her. Not only was she really working towards justice always, but she was also a learner till the day she died, right? And she said to me, you start right now with your doctor of ministry program so that the congregation understands how important learning is. And, and she was always learning, right? Um, she and Deb Krause were doing a book study on Steve Patterson's book uh, as she was sitting at her home, not being able to go anywhere because she was so sick. So I think that's, that's why we want this symposium uh, to be named in her memory because she was so passionate about learning and justice and what a great way to make this happen is to do this. And so uh, it made sense that Cassandra and Starsky would be two of the first speakers for this because they were both students of Maryland's. And I'll add as a layperson who did not get to experience her at the seminary uh, and just be being a fellow congregation member is that uh, she was full of grace and she taught me a, a lot about grace and, and uh, belonging uh, to the full community. Um, and so she was an inspiration, not only to academia, but also to those of us who just existed with her side by side in the pews. So uh, it is wonderful that we're naming this after her. And Wendy, any uh, final thoughts you want to give a shout out? Uh, again, details on the symposium and how to how to participate. Well, so uh, once again, the symposium is on May 1st. It goes from 9 a.m. to noon. Um, the registration, there's a number of ways you can do it, but you can get on the Peace website or Facebook page. M I know MCU is advertising it too. So 
Um, you, you should be able to find the registration link there free for anybody who wants to join. Uh, we are really encouraging people to come and be part of this conversation. But then we are um, we want the conversation uh, to continue into action. And so we can have as many conversations and intellectualize this as we want to, but that actually what's going to happen after the symposium is going to tell, right? So um, this is a way for us to get to learn more and then get out there and uh, change the world so that it becomes more equitable. So I would just invite everybody who wants to do that. I would invite you to come. It's going to be a great, uh, great morning. Great. Thank you, Ona. Thank you both. Uh, once again, our guests today were Reverend Dr. Cassandra Gould, the Executive Director of Missouri Faith Voices and Minister of Beyond the Walls, and Reverend Wendy Bruner, President of the Board of MCU and Pastor at Peace United Church of Christ in Webster Groves. To learn more about MCU, go to Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.